Deuteronomy chapter 4, Sunday nights through the Bible, Genesis through Revelation, and we find ourselves in Deuteronomy chapter 4. And here is Moses, and uh, we find ourselves in the final portion in chapter 4 of uh, his, uh, the, the first of five sermons on his part in the book of Deuteronomy dealing with the subject of obedience among his people. And I'll tell you something, when I read the book of Deuteronomy, I'm, I never tire of the message of obedience. It never gets tedious to me or thinking, oh boy, when, I mean, how many ways are you, is something like this going to be said? Apparently, I can't be reminded of obedience too much. <laughs> That's just the way that I, you may get tired of it, I doubt you do. How many of you, if you've uh, raising children or you've raised children, how much of your time spent in raising those children dealt with the issue of obedience? Over and over and over again. The Bible says that we're God's children. And so, you know, people get frustrated with the little whippersnappers. Think about what God's dealing with. It's a very large family in the world. And uh, so he's always working on this theme uh, of obedience. So speaking to the children of Israel just before they enter into the promised land to uh, conquer it as lo the Lord has promised it to them. Now, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 1, now, and, and now as a context, we're going to try and make some, gonna, I'm going to stop at the first word. I know this sinks some people's hearts a little bit, but what is the, the word now kind of sets up a context. He's been building up to a point. By the time you're in a sermon and you say, now, I mean, it's like you've done this whole thing and then now everything's going to crystallize. What he's done in chapter 1 is he's spoken about the disobedience of the first generation to obey God and enter into the promised land, their lack of faith, their disobedience, and where it led them in their life with God. It led them into a wilderness. It led them into a place that nobody would want to be. In chapters 2 and 3, he then speaks to this second generation and he kind of lays out their history over where obedience in their life has led them. And their simple obedience to the Lord has led to one victory after another and here they're on the edge of the promised land ready to go in. So he's just driving home this lesson. Disobedience leads nowhere and obedience leads into just a fabulous uh, life as you're experiencing. So he's telling them, look at what has happened in your life as a child of God just by virtue. You don't have a PhD. You don't have any kind of super training. Just by obeying God's word, look at what has happened to you here. And they, and they have the evidence. Great life with God. Great victories with God. Great history with God. And so the lesson is, as you would read the contrast between the two, why in the world would anyone begin a relationship with God, experience in those early days and months and years all of the blessings that God adds to our lives as a result of simple obedience, why would a person ever then move to a life of disobedience? And, and, it, and that's kind of the, the question that he's raising here a little bit in their minds is to kind of build a barrier between ever going back to a life of disobedience. I can tell you why it happens. And the reason that it happens is sometimes we get a little haughty and we get a little proud as a result of God's blessings in our life. And there is this thing called the old man that is still present in us. 
the old nature from Adam. We become a Christian. The Holy Spirit comes into our life. There's a new man. We're under new management. And the new manager, the Holy Spirit, is far stronger than our old man and where our old man, our sinful nature, wants to take us in life. Um, But the old man is still alive there. The Bible says, I am to reckon him dead, to accept this fact. He is dead. He no longer has authority over my life. But he's not dead. You feed your old man a saltine cracker, and he springs to life like you've given him power bars and cliff bars. And I mean, he, he can jump to life and, and start to fight against the will of God for our lives and just the smallest thing. So the, the importance of looking at this and saying, listen, disobedience leads nowhere. Obedience leads to blessing. It's a testimony of every one of our lives, but we need to be... Uh, reminded of that. So now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and to the judgments which I teach you, not to, that I teach you to observe. So here he's saying, I want you to listen to God's law that I'm teaching you, but then coupled with that listening has to be a willingness to obey it. It's like James said. He said, be not uh, only hearers of the word, but be doers of the word also. And, and so the necessity of hearing and then doing for the blessings of God to be appropriated in our lives. Not just enough to have it in our noggin. We obey it and obey, obedience is obedience. Listening is not obedience yet. So listen to the statutes and the judgments which I teach you to observe. And, and for this reason, so, so that I can lead you into the most miserable life you thought, I'll tell you, that you're walking with, if people think walking with God is like the most miserable thing in the world, it's not that you may live and go in and possess the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you. He said, you shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I command you. Verse 2 of chapter 4 is a very important verse to understand so much of the ministry of Jesus. When he was constantly uh, confronting the Jewish religious systems of his day, he was trying to bring the nation of Israel back to obedience to this passage. And that is, no one was to add to the Word of God at all, and no one was to take away from the Word of God in order that people would know what the Word of God said and then would have the ability to choose to obey it. You had, you had the liberal element, you had kind of the, the legalistic element uh, of, of Judaism, and, and so you had in this whole thing of adding to the Word of God, you had the um, Pharisees who were the legalists, and they were kind of uh, traditionalists, and they added a lot of traditions to the Word of God. And, and so, in fact, they added so much tradition to the Word of God, and they gave the man-made uh, tradition, and they elevated the, their man-made tradition and ideas that they attached to the Word of God, that in Jesus' day, uh, the rabbis were teaching and the Jews were believing that the, these interpretations of the rabbis and, and these traditions that had been added to the Word of God held even greater weight than the Word of God. And you look at how much of Jesus' public ministry was spent trying to cut away the weight of all of this man-made junk 
that was attached to God's Word, to streamline it, bring it back to what it was intended to be. That's why you hear Jesus speak to the religious leaders over and over and over again through the Gospels, where he would say to them, Have you not read? Have you never read? Have you not seen? Speaking to them. These guys considered themselves to be the experts in the Jewish law, and here is Jesus saying to them, Have you never read this verse? Have you never seen this verse? And in many cases, evidently, they had not or had not given it any kind of weight because you only have so much time in life. You're going to take time and either pour it into a knowledge of the Word of God, walking with God, having a relationship with God, obeying God, or my life is going to pour into traditions of men. Nobody has time to do both. So he kept bringing them back to the fact that you folks know an awful lot about the traditions that have been added to the Word of God, but you don't know much about the Word of God, though you claim to be the experts. He's dealing with this passage. You have the Sadducees who were the liberals of Jesus' day, and they were the ones who would constantly try to take away from the Word of God. And nobody would come in and say, well, you know, Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 10 through 14, that doesn't really belong in the Bible. Nobody did that kind of thing. But what they did in taking away from the Word of God is whenever there was a demand of God in His Word that was super demanding, I mean, it, it required hardship, it required sacrifice on the part of a child of God to obey that, they'd come in and they'd explain it away. They'd come up with an interpretation that in essence said, well, it doesn't really mean that. It means this. And that this, this that it meant, of course, did not require the same kind of commitment uh, that, that the Word of God actually called for. Jesus dealt with that issue of Korban, you remember. The Bible taught that uh, children to, were to honor their fathers and their mothers, and a part of honoring their fathers and their mothers was to support them in their old age. They changed your diapers, and they taught you how to eat and ride a bike and all these things. And so now when they get older and you're in the prime of life and your kind of strength and earning years, if they find themselves in a place where they need material support from you, they were to do that. That was a requirement of the law. And uh, so here are these, you know, younger Jewish uh, men and rabbis, and they're looking at that and saying, wow, I'd like to get out from under that and keep all my money for myself. So they developed this tradition called Korban, where a person, according to their teaching, could come along and say, well, so mom and dad come, and they say, you know, we're having a little trouble getting the heating bill paid, you know, this month and everything. Is there any way that you could? Oh, dad, I'd love to help you out on that, but, you know, I took everything I own and I dedicated it to God. So it's not really mine anymore. I can't really help you out at all. And so, and so they would get out from, they would undermine the clear intent and teaching of that commandment was something that they added to the Word of God to take away from the Word of God. This was the kind of stuff that Jesus was dealing with all of the time. And, and so he, he rebukes them here, or uh, M Moses takes and he speaks about uh, the importance of not adding to the Word of God and, and not taking away uh, from, from the Word of God. I think that um, each of us today, we have to be very, very careful uh, in this area. I think that I, I, I really challenge myself as a pastor. 
You know, one of the great things about heading through the Bible, however slowly, uh, from Genesis uh, to Revelation, one of the great things about it is that you can't really skip anything. You can try and explain it away, but you know what? If I, try, I got up here and said, well, you know, this and this and everything like this, all you guys would be looking at me saying, yeah, right. So here you are, we're going through the passage and we read it, you look down, I start to talk a little about it, you look up, you know, and you're testing it by the Word of God. The nice thing about heading through the Scriptures all the way through it is you hit everything and you hit it in the exact proportion that it's in the Word of God. And it, what it keeps us away from is it keeps me from getting on a hobby horse. Because every week I could probably preach about the same thing because it's always big in my heart. But it may not be big in your heart. And it may not be as big a deal to God as I make it out to be. So we just head through the Word of God. I think it's interesting that when the Apostle Paul was heading back to Jerusalem and he met with the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts, and he spoke to them, and, and he feels it's gonna, like it's going to be the last time that he's ever going to see them. And he said, I am innocent of the blood of all men. Wow. How come, Paul? Because I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And he declared that as an accomplishment in his life. That was something he felt he had done something great in doing that. And one of the great things about heading through the Scriptures is that you don't cut any sections out and you don't, and, and you don't uh, add to the Word of God. And, and you, can, you can take away from the Word of God, I think today, uh, and the, the importance of all the way through the Scriptures, is that you could come to a church like this, and if I decided that I didn't want to teach all the way through the Word of God, you know, I could teach for 20 years, and still there'd be 10 or 15 things that I would never teach from the Bible. And if you attended all that time, and that was all the Christianity that you knew, that would never be built into your life. And I would be taking away from the Word of God being built into your life. And so it's really important for us. People need to hear the whole Word of God. And I think we have to be careful very much individually, and not just those of us who are teaching the Word of God, but all of us from not taking the Word of God when we've got a loved one or a family member or a best friend and the Scripture is right there. And Wow, that's going to be so hard to obey. Man, it's going to really, you're going to have to die to yourself to do that thing right there. And we try to come up with, well, it probably doesn't really mean that and this kind of, God says, don't do that. I'm not supposed to do that. It's real easy to do that today because there's so many things our culture doesn't want to hear about. And it doesn't want to hear God's opinion about an awful lot of things and an awful lot of sin. But that means it's even more important for us not to add to or to take away from the Word of God, even privately in our own lives, but to declare the whole counsel uh, of God. And so uh, this important, it lets us know, and I just think about the ministry of Jesus and, and uh, think about how hard Jesus was working there related to verse 2. To, to just, he spent three and a half years almost just trying to undo the uh, violations among religious men there in verse 2. And of course, this uh, command not to add to the Word of God, not to take away from the Word of God, is all the way through the Bible. All the way back, go all the way through in the book of Revelation. There, John, as he's writing by the Holy Spirit, he makes that same command there. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him to the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, speaking of Revelation, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. 
And John just looked and said, don't be playing fast and loose with the book of Revelation. And, and so uh, that, that warning, God just looking for mis- messengers to just deliver the goods. He's not looking for editors or anything like that. And, and he wants his people to hear the word of God. Here's why. Verse 3. Because the stakes are very high. Stakes are very high over a person hearing the word of God and then having the freedom or to obey or not obey the word of God. He said, your eyes have seen what the Lord did at Baal Peor, for the Lord your God has destroyed from among you, God's people, all the men who followed Baal Peor. This is how important is this to, to, to not add to the word of God or take away from it? You remember at Baal Peor, remember that was when Balaam gave the, the uh, counsel to Balak to entice the men of Israel through sexual relationships with the Moabite women and also to lead them in idolatry and 24,000 uh, Jewish men uh, died as a result of the plague. So he's, he's saying, you know, knowing the word of God and obeying the word of God, the stakes are very, very high. But, he said, in contrast to that, look what happens when people obey the word of God. But you held fast to the Lord your God, and you're alive today, uh, every one of you. So, uh, you know, for those who obeyed the word of God, so obeying the word of God is a good thing, right? You betcha it's a good, it's a good thing. So, surely, he said, I have taught you statutes and judgments just as the Lord my God commanded me that you should act according to them in the land which you go uh, to possess. And therefore be careful to observe them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who will hear all these statutes and say, surely this great nation is wise, a wise and understanding People. Now, one of the things that Moses is saying here is that obedience to God's word produces such a high quality of person in comparison to the kind of person that the false gods of this world or the wisdom of this world produces. And he says, you just obey this word. And it's going to be a a, a great light and revelation to the Gentile nations. They're going to look and say, wow, what kind of God produces people like that versus, you know, the crummy, scummy kind of person that our God produces in our culture? And, and they'll look to us, just, to, just simple obedience, they'll look at us and they'll say, those are a very wise and understanding people. People will think we're smart, and we're not even smart, we're just obedient. One of the things that I like about, uh, and it's in the book of Isaiah, where it declares uh, that even the fool uh, who walks in obedience to God's word is, puts himself on a path that is safe. You don't have to be smart. You don't have, I mean, anything to, to in, enjoy the blessings of the life that God describes in this word. All I have to do is be obedient and then this whole glorious life uh, opens up and it unfolds to us. And, and so the, the whole Gentile world would look and say, these are a wise and understanding people, and we can look at them and say, yes, what else have you noticed about me? And, uh, and it doesn't really have anything to do with us. It just has to do with the fact that we're obedient. You look at the average Christian who takes and obeys God's word in terms of how they do their business in terms of 
how they handle their marriage, the raising of their children, the kind of child that is generally produced as a result, how they handle themselves sexually in this, in this culture, how they handle themselves in, in terms of uh, what they put into their mind and before their eyes, and this, how they handle their money, all these different kinds of things. And it produces such a different kind of person and such an obviously superior person because that's what the Word of God uh, does. I like what Jesus said. He said, wisdom is justified by her children. Wisdom in, the wor- in, in this world, wisdom isn't wisdom because it claims to be wisdom. True wisdom is justified by the kind of human being it produces. I don't care where you go all around the world. I don't care what color a person is. I don't care what the educational systems are like in that world or the healthcare systems are in that world. I don't care what kind of gods they worship in that part of the world. None of that stuff matters. You watch where a person who is a child of God obeys the word of God and you watch the superior life that is produced just through simple obedience. We don't have to be smart to enter into the fullness of God's blessings. We just need to be obedient. And isn't it weird how the world, I mean, the world fights God's standard and it fights God's word and it fights God's commandments and what he says is right and wrong and these kind of things. And so they are constantly through media or all these different vehicles that they have and they have it seems like billions of dollars to give to it. And they put out all of their wisdom and, you know, this is what life is about and all these movies that have a message and they're supposed to influence and music and books and all this kind of stuff. And then by the time they spew out their message, people take it seriously for a generation. Then what do they do? They've got to hide the people. that obeyed their idea of what right and wrong is and what life is like. they got to hide the kind of person that their wisdom produces. But God doesn't have to do that because it produces a great and satisfied and holy person who is in line with all of creation. When we obey God's word, we are in line with everything in his creation. It's the way to live. So it's just a beautiful life. And I'm so glad you don't have to be smart to enjoy it. So that's how they would look at it. Said, wow, what a wise and understanding people they are. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us for whatever reason we may call upon him? So the, the nations would be in awe over the uh, nearness of God to the children of Israel, that he could get close enough to communicate this kind of law to them. And what nation is there that has such statues and righteous judgments as are in this law which I have set before you this day? You look at the, look at the law of Moses. Look at the law of Moses' definitions of right and wrong. And you look at the nations of the world where that is the foundation of that nation's understanding of right and wrong. And you will see a people who are living at least two or three steps above where everybody else is living in this world who are following false gods or following the wisdom of man. Aren't you glad to have the wisdom of God to follow? 
Just having to wake up and say, okay, I'll obey today, God. Here come the, this is the greatest life. And, 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 it's, and it's true. He said, only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen, and lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. And teach them to your children and to your grandchildren. And so he exhorts them, never forget these things, the superiority of God's Word to everything else that's in the world, and make sure you don't forget about it, and make sure you teach it to your children and your grandchildren, especially concerning the day that you stood before the Lord your God in Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me, all the days they live on the earth and that they may teach their children. And then you came near and you stood at the foot of the mountain and the mountain burned. And so Moses is talking about when that first generation received uh, the Ten Commandments from the Lord, Mount Sinai, Mount Horeb. And a lot of these, they were little kids. They were whippersnappers and, and they were there present on, on that. A lot of the second generation weren't even born at that time, so Moses is giving them a little history lesson. Remember when God said to gather all of you there at the mount to give the law, you came near, you stood at the foot of the mountain, the mountain burned with fire to, uh, to the midst of heaven and with darkness, cloud and thick darkness, and the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words but saw no form. You only heard a voice, and so He declared to you His covenant which he commanded you to perform the Ten Commandments, and he wrote them on two tablets of stone. And so he, he reminds them of the whole incident from Moses. He's 120 years old, and it's like it, it happened 40 years ago, but it's just like it happened yesterday. And the Lord commanded me at that time to teach you statutes and judgments that you might observe them in the land which you cross over to possess. Take careful heed to yourself. For you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Now apparently in the giving of the Ten Commandments, when God gave the law to the children of Israel and they came around uh, the mount, He spoke to them uh, in a way they could hear the Ten Commandments. And then He proceeded to write them on tablets of stone. He didn't put it on, you know, paper or parchment or anything like that. The reason he put it on stones is the, the law of Moses has a permanent place in, in human history. It certainly has a permanent place in establishing God's standard of right and wrong and bringing sinners to a conviction related to their sin and then to look for, for a Savior. So God spoke the Ten Commandments to them, wrote it uh, on tablets of stone. But at that event... When God uh, spoke the law to them, Moses is reminding them, Did you see God? No, we never saw Him. Why didn't you see Him? The reason they didn't see Him, Jesus uh, declared in John chapter 4, is the Father's a spirit. He's a spirit. He isn't a physical, a physical being. And the point he's going to make here is, don't be making idols after, after God, because it's impossible to make a physical thing to represent a God who is a spirit and, and has chosen to communicate to us in ways that are vastly superior to idolatry. And so you didn't see any form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, unless you act corruptly 
and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, and the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. All the nations that surrounded them, and, and uh, even in Egypt where they were, they made uh, gods that were uh, you know, made up of these kind of images of animals and insects and this kind of thing. He said, take heed lest you lift up even your eyes to heaven. And, and you see the sun and the moon and the stars. You see the whole host of heaven. It's an awesome thing to look up in the sky. Every once in a while I can see a star in Modesto in the summer. So you've got to get up to Yosemite or somewhere, you know, all these fires and everything, on top of the normal pollution. But when you do get to a place and you see a sunset and you see the stars and it just humbles you, it makes you feel so small. You say, my God made that. He launched that. He keeps the whole thing operating. Just great Lord, you are too much. But he knows that they're going into a land where people look up at the sun and the moon and the stars and they see them and they go, wow, that's amazing. Let's worship them. And what the writer, what Moses is bringing out here by the Lord is the same thing that Paul brings out in Romans chapter 1 is don't worship the creation. Not only don't worship some little stone pottery junk thing that comes from China or wherever, you know, you get fashioned, just nothing, you know, and worship that as a God. Even when you see God's creation at its best, don't worship that. Why? Because the creation always speaks of a creator. The design speaks of a designer. And the Creator is always greater than His creation. And the design is always greater than His design. So it is always a great mistake for a person to take and to worship the creation when creation merely speaks to us. There is a Creator behind it to worship the Creator who is blessed forevermore. Now why is that important? There are people all around us every single day in this community who worship the creation. That's as far as they take their thinking. And it's important to know, wait a second, that just tells you a creator exists. That just speaks you to about the power of that creator. But you don't want to worship the, crea the creation. You want to worship the creator who is far greater. And so Moses has given him kind of a you know, lesson on logic here and in moving away from idolatry. And take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the hosts of heaven, and you feel driven to worship them. We're made to worship, aren't we? Something. And serve them which the Lord your God has given to all people under the whole heaven as a heritage. But the Lord has taken you, and He's brought you out of the iron furnace. Wow. So what's an iron furnace? What do you use an iron furnace for? You put stuff in there so it gets really hot. Like you put a metal in an iron furnace, get that real hot so that the dross will come up, rise to the top in the metals. You can scoop that, that dross or that worthless stuff off of the metal. So he's talking about an iron furnace, and he, that's how he describes Egypt as an iron furnace in their history. He called you out of the iron furnace, out of Egypt, to be his people and inheritance as it is this day. Now, how in the world was Egypt an iron furnace? They were idolatry central at that time. They just spent 400 years watching. Look at the kind of perversion. Look at the kind of person. Look at the kind of nation that's produced by idolatry. 
So you've seen idolatry at its most, you've seen its idolatry at its best, and I've allowed you to be in Egypt for 400 years to protect you, to make, turn you from a family to a nation, but also so that you would never in your history ever look and say that idolatry can produce a better person than the God of the Bible, the true and the living God. And so that was a part of what their 400 years was about. And furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes, and he swore that I would not cross over the Jordan and that I would not go into the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. But I must die in this land, must not cross over the Jordan, but you shall cross over and possess the good land. So what's Moses bringing this up again and saying, listen, one more time, I just want you to know, it's because you guys, I'm not getting in. That's not what's going on here. Basically what he's saying to them is, I'm not going in with you, and you know why. But I'm not going in, and I can't personally make sure that you will heed me on this. And so you need to look out for one another and make sure that you obey this uh, turning away from any temptation to idolatry. Take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God, which he made with you, and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire. Yeah. So there's a, you know, people want this little wimpy God, don't they? Little wimpy, little wimpy God. I like him because I can beat him up, man, with my own ideas and my everything. I like the fact that my God's a consuming fire. And I like the fact that he's a jealous God. He talks about in the context of idolatry. God comes and he speaks to us. He speaks to his people and says, listen, I'm God. I've done a lot for you. But what you've got to remember about me is whatever people do or don't believe about me does not change the fact that I am the God that I am. And because I am the God that I am, I don't need to share you with anybody. I don't share people with anything. What an insult it is to God for him with the children of Israel if he's going to share the devotion of a single individual. This person is saying, well, you know, I, I worship Yahweh, I worship Jehovah of the Bible, and I worship Baal. This little nothing thing. What kind of an insult is that to God? So God says, no, that doesn't work that way. I don't share people that way. I am a jealous God in the best sense of the word. There is a carnal, fleshly jealousy that isn't good in a person's life. So I'm talking about that. So what if, I mean, what if, what if, uh, you know, Karen came home and she said, listen, you know, I've been kind of rethinking things a little bit, my wife, and says, listen, I think, I think I'm a little too good for one person, you know, so I've you know, we're going to bring a couple of other guys into the house and everything and, and, uh, and all, and, and uh, just thinking like that. And I'm sure you wouldn't have any kind of a, a problem. We're just going to do kind of a share thing here now. Over my... <laughs> that's just not going to happen. I mean, that would just be a complete affront to me. And I'm just a dope. I'm not the true and the living God. So, so God doesn't do this share plan with us and this kind of thing. He deserves, He is a jealous God because He rightfully deserves all of our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. 
He shouldn't have to share even a portion of our lives with any of the things that the, the, the world worships. And when you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land and act corruptly, so here he heads into kind of a prophecy that they're going to, despite the warnings, they're going to go into idolatry and they're going to pay a price for it. When you beget children and grandchildren and you've grown old in the land and you act corruptly, corruptly and make a carved image idolatry in the form of anything. I don't care how beautiful it is and you do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger. Now you notice it, you, you, you can't worship a false god without that then translating into a certain way of life. He says you're going to make a carved image and the next step is you're doing evil in the sight of God. There's spirits attached to these things. And so he says, when you do this kind of thing, you're going to provoke your God to anger. It's a righteous anger. And I will call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed. It will be the end for you. And, of course, this happens uh, we know, he was speaking of it prophetically, we know it happened historically, when the children of Israel later in their history, because of idolatry, what is idolatry? Sometimes as Americans we think, well, we don't have, you know, this little statue that's sitting here that we worship in our home and all this, like just, you know, those obvious pagans and different things like that. But it's a little more complicated than that. Idolatry is the worship of any created thing. And in all of this whole universe, you have the Creator and you have everything else. So just because we don't take and put a little statue up in our house and put candles in front of it and all that kind of thing, doesn't mean that we can't be tempted into idolatry or a person can't be an idolater. A person can idolize and worship a title, a position, uh, money, material things, a car, lots of things, a home, lots of things. Any, the worship of any physical, created, material thing, or even just not even a, necessarily physically thing, anything that's created is idolatry. And the children of Israel, they gave themselves to idolatry, the idols of the nations that were around them, the false gods that they were worshiping. And then the northern kingdom of Israel went into captivity to the Assyrians first, and then later the southern kingdom of Judah went into captivity to the Babylonians. And they went into, just like God said, you're going to go into captivity and, and the nation is, you're, you're going to be displaced out of the nation. The nation's going to be destroyed as a result of it. And in essence, it ceased to exist. One of the things that the Babylonians did is kind of their methodology when they conquered the whole world and they were one of the great world ruling empires of, 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 uh, of all of human history is when they came in and conquered a people, they simply displaced the entire native population. They didn't allow them to stick together and then maybe work out a plan to fight. They found that they'd go into Israel and they'd take that whole group of people and they'd move them to Babylon. And then if they conquered another land, they would bring those people over here. And it just kept everyone kind of on edge. And it kept things destabilized in terms of, of rebellion or revolution against them. And so the children of Israel went into captivity to the Babylonians. The interesting thing about the Babylonians when they went into captivity to Babylon is that at that time in human history, Babylon was idolatry central in the whole world. They had idols 
anywhere you wanted to look. And what God was doing is saying, in essence, to the children of Israel, you like idols? You like to worship those things? It's been so bad obeying me and worshiping me and being my children and all. All right, you like idols? I'll give you idols. I'll send you to Babylon. You'll have idols coming out of your nose. And you'll get to see the kind of people in society that is produced by the worship of these idols. And I'll guarantee you one thing. It will cure you of your idolatry. You will come to your senses there and you'll come back to me with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul and all your strength, which is precisely what they did. In fact, the children of Israel, following the Babylonian captivity that they came out of, they never fell back into idolatry ever again. And, and they, were, they were cured of it. Now, they had other problems. We won't get into that tonight. got the whole rest of the Bible to get into those, those things. But this is, this is what happened. That this idolatry would then lead them into that kind of bondage. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you'll be left few in number among the nations where the Lord will drive you. So he's even speaking about the fact that you're going to be, those that do survive, you're going to be displaced. And there you will serve, you're going to serve gods over there, the work of men's hands. That's a sad thing, isn't it? Wood and stone and these, you're going to go worship gods which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. Got a little god right there. Hello! And he left the true and living God for that? The God that spoke to him at Mount Horeb, gave him the law? We're so close you can talk to him any time and he hears us and he's involved in our life and blessed him like crazy. They gave him up for that? Oh, there's, there's a spirit behind that kind of thing. But the nice thing is sometimes, I mean, you just look and say, how, how dumb could we be on this? And how, even individually, how dumb could I have been to fall for that kind of thing? To leave you for that? Oh! Now, what saves us from condemnation, forever kicking ourselves all the way till we get into heaven, is the but of verse 29. But from there, you will seek the Lord your God. It'll be part of the light coming on for you. And you'll find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. And when you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, so repentance was allowed, for the Lord your God is a merciful God. Don't shout out, but is there anyone that needs to hear that tonight? You're returning from a backslide or some kind of a deal, and you say, I left God for that? What, for that guy? For that girl? For that thing? For that dream? For that? What was I thinking? Well, nothing's a total loss that we learn something from, and it's not a total loss because our God allows us to repent, have a change of mind about our decision-making, a change of mind about the direction we're going in life, and then because he's a merciful God, we can turn back to him. And he will not forsake you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers, which he swore to them. You can come home. For, the, uh, for ask now concerning the days which are past, which are before you, since the day that God created man on the earth and asked from one end of heaven to another whether any great thing like this has happened or anything like it has been heard. 
Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you heard and live? Anybody have a history with God like the history that you have? Nope. Or did God ever try to go and take for himself a nation from the midst of other, uh, another nation by trials, by signs, uh, by wonders, by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm and by great terrors according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. He's basically saying, go ask the followers of all these other gods that are in this world. Ask them if their God has pulled off anything remotely like this. The answer, of course, is no. And the point that, G that Moses is making here in this whole thing that he's speaking is at the, at all the way you know, through as we get down to, to verse 40. But he's, he's driving home the same point all the way through. He's saying, you've got it as, as good as can be. You, you, can't, it, you, you can't have it any better than what you have in following me. It's not out there, God is saying. Don't waste your time going out there to try and find it. There's nothing better than me out there. So don't, don't waste an hour, don't waste a year, don't waste a decade out there doing it. There's no one who does what I can do, knows what I do. For to you, verse 35, it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God. There is none other besides him. Now, verse 35, and you can circle that in your Bible if you want. Don't circle it before you know why. Not on my word. You might even circle verse 39. Verse 35 and verse 39 completely dismantle the Mormon religion, which teaches there are many gods and that you can become a god yourself. God just says as clear as a bell in his word, for to you it was shown that you might know that the Lord himself is God. There is none other besides himself. Don't waste your time in Mormonism, for sure. Don't waste your time on that. Out of heaven he let you hear his voice that he might instruct you. This is a personal God we serve. On earth he showed you his great fire and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire. And because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose their descendants after them and he brought you out of Egypt with his presence and with his mighty power, driving out from before you the nations that were greater than you and uh, mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land as inheritance as it is this day. And therefore, know this day and consider it in your heart that the Lord himself is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath there is no other. Moses is saying, ladies and gentlemen, you're home. It doesn't get better than the life you are enjoying and following and worshiping the true and the living God, the God of the Bible. Don't waste your time looking anywhere else. And you shall therefore keep his statutes. Here's the conclusion. As a result of that, shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you today, that it may go well with you and with your children after you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which the Lord your God is giving you for 
all time. Obedience to God's word just allowed him the opportunity to bless them as fully as he desired. The Bible, the Bible describes God the Father as, as a, he's our heavenly father. He's a father. That's a very wonderful term that is attached to him and, uh, as, as a father. And one of the great desires of a father and, and all of us as, as human fathers, we're limited in our ability to express ourselves. We're limited by our resources. But one of the things a father wants to do for his children is he wants to bless them. He wants to bless them more than he wants to bless himself. That's the heart of a father. And one of the worst things a kiddo can do to a father is to live a life insignificant enough disobedience that he can no longer bless that child in the way that he wants. And there's a lot of you in this room that understand that. How hard it was in raising that child and maybe you're still in that situation where you say, man, I would love to just open up the fount of blessing to bless their life, but they are so out there right now, it'll, they'll just use it to kill themselves or to run further away from God. I think it's important for us to understand that this whole side of receiving God's blessing and, and, and our lives being marked by God's blessing, sometimes we can think of it just one-dimensionally, that it all has to do with me, and okay, this is how I get ahead, and, and it's, all a, it's all about, you know, I'm the only one that's in the equation. There's a Heavenly Father in the equation, too. And He loves us to obey Him because it allows Him to then just pour out the fullness of the blessings that he wants to pour out on our lives. And that brings him pleasure. Anybody get what I'm saying here? It's huge. It's huge, especially when you find yourself in a place where you've got to close off the tap because of something and you realize how much it kills you to do that and how much you want to do. And the same thing is true of our, of our Heavenly Father. And then Moses sent apart three cities on this side of the Jordan, talking about the cities of refuge, which we've covered in the past. So there are going to be three of them on the east side of the Jordan, which is where they were right now, three on the west. So he's addressing uh, the three on the east side now. And we've, all, we've always known he was going to establish six cities, three on one side, three on the other, but we didn't know where. So now it's established where those cities are going to be. So on the east side toward the rising of the sun, which is the east side, that the manslayer may flee there who kills his neighbor unintentionally without having hated him in time past, and that by fleeing to one of these cities he might live. And here are the cities. Uh, Bezer in the wilderness on the plateau, plateau for the Reubenites, so in the area given over to the tribe of Reuben, uh, Ramoth and Gilead for the Gadites in the area of the tribe of Gad, and Golan, in Bashan for the uh, Manassites. Uh, they're taken out of the, the region of the tribe of Manasseh on the east side. We will stop there tonight because verse 44 is actually the introduction for the second sermon. So we will, next time we're together in a couple of weeks, we'll, we'll take that and then head, uh, take the introduction and then head right into sermon number two, which begins officially in chapter five. So what?